Let's bow for a word of prayer as we look into the Word of God together this morning. We do thank you, dear Father, for these words of the new life that we are privileged to sing. If there is any hope in them, we turn to them as our response to the solid foundation that we find in your word. These are words that flow from your truth, and we believe that they are filled with hope, that there is truth in them, that there is joy in them because we have come to taste and to see that the Lord is good, that you give life to those who call upon your name. And I pray, dear God, that that life might be seen and made clear this morning. We would rejoice in it, that any who do not rejoice in it would come to understand the fullness that we find in Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Lord, please now open your word to us. I pray that the Spirit of God would be moving among us and teaching us and helping us to discern. We labor in vain without the light of the Spirit of God, illumining the truth and helping us to see it. I pray, God, that you will strengthen us to that end. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. What's your favorite story? Think of all the children's books, the novels, the movies, the plays that you have read or watched over the years. If you had to choose the very best one of all of them, what would be your favorite story? We might take a vote here. Some might agree on what that favorite story is. Probably not. We probably all have a different story, something that we really enjoy. But I mean a, I mean a good story. One that's good enough that it has made you in some way a better person. Something you'd like to hear over and over again. Now, I'd like you to think about that story. You have something in mind, I hope, by now. A story that you love more than any other, or at least one of your favorites. Think about that story. Somewhere in there, there is a plot. There is a storyline. A development of some type of event, something that is happening, taking place. Some type of a struggle. There's tension in there that calls for some sort of relief. There's probably a villain in your story, some type of wicked, cowardly, or selfish person, or perhaps it's an immense problem, something that's got to be conquered, something that has to be changed in some way. Good stories include some great goal in them, some conquest that is met by stiff resistance. I mean, ask yourself, what good is a romance if there's not some struggle in it? Some struggle involved in getting this couple together. Isn't that the thing that really draws us to the romance? Or something's trying to tear them apart. What good is a mystery or a crime story and it's real easy to catch the villain? That's no fun. Or a mystery where you already know what the answer is. It's, quite, it's, it's very simple to see. What good, think about this, maybe some of you, matter of fact, let me see, anybody say uh, Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, is that your favorite story? Anybody think that? <laughs> it's a great one, I think we all know it. Think about that, what good is a Christmas Carol without a wicked Scrooge, without a poor Bob Cratchit, without, what's his name, Tim, little Tim or something, what, what good is it if he... Is that not right? <laughs> Tiny Tim. You know, I thought about that, but somebody else came to mind when I thought about that. <laughs> so there's, what good is Tiny Tim if, if, he's, if he's healthy? I mean, what good is that story? There are, the, there are those elements in it. There's, there's resistance, isn't there? There's struggle. There's a problem that has to be solved. 
In Shakespeare's Henry V, an English soldier's facing battle against the French on French soil. And the scene is one of those ones where the soldiers are going into a battle that they know they cannot win. The enemy is five times larger. They're on their home soil, and they are rested. And the English troops are there facing what seems to be sure death. And one of the soldiers says to King Henry, who is there at the battle scene and ready to go into battle, and, says, and he bemoans all of the Englishmen who are back home, resting at ease on this day of battle. And King Henry, in the words of Shakespeare, wisely reminds the man that if the English win this battle, you will be glad there was not one more soldier on this field today. One more soldier to share with you the glory when you go back to England. It's a great line. What is he saying there? You see the tension, the struggle. It, it, it's, what, is it exciting to consider that story, that battle, the French against the English, if we look at it from the French side? five times more on their home ground, rested against weary troops. There's no excitement in that, but there's something thrilling, something that grabs our attention in the struggle of going against great odds and winning. And by the way, the English do win that battle, which I suppose is why it was made into a play, because there was some victory through the struggle, through the difficulty. The glory is in the challenge. We don't like stories where there is no tension. They don't work for us. Good, enduring, enriching stories always record some grand victory over a great enemy. And this is really true in real life as well, isn't it? We've seen many real-life stories that have emerged in recent days from the attack that we've suffered as a nation. Heroism, courage, self-sacrifice, love, devotion. The stories continue to come out as we hear them. You notice they're all stories against, with a struggle in mind, against the difficulties. All these stories emerge against a backdrop of terrorism and a struggle against death. Now, some of these stories are obviously tragic. Why are they tragic? What we want to see happen does not happen. The good that we want to emerge out of the story doesn't take place, and so it's a tragic story, but still, it grabs our attention because there's this battle against a great enemy. I think that by our very nature, we are hardwired to respond to stories of triumph over evil or trouble. Animals are not inspired by such stories. Storytelling is really something that belongs just to us as human beings. They are not inspired, the animal world. They're not led to cry or led to rejoice or their attention is not gained by issues of justice. They're not moved by heroism or by courage or conquest over evil or difficulty, but we are. And I believe we are because we are created that way. The Bible declares that God created us in His image. We were created to think and to feel like God thinks and feels. Certainly in a different way as creatures, but nonetheless, made in His image, we love a story. We love the struggle between good and evil when the good conquers. There's something innate in us that desires to know such things, very different from the animal world. The Bible also teaches that God is the author of human history. Not only is He our Creator making us in His image, but He is the author of human history. 
And so there is a great story that he is writing that progresses from age to age. And in this love, God is placed in each of us. In his love, God has placed in each of us a natural interest in stories. That we might better comprehend the greatest story of all. That is his story. The one that he is writing on the pages of history. As we might expect, how does this story play out? It's filled, as you know, as you look at your own life, it is filled with struggle and heartache and trial and difficulty. There are wicked people that get into the pages of this story. As we might expect, it is filled with struggle and trial and disappointment. You know that very well. But I'd like to take you this morning to the very heart of the story. I'd like you to think of your favorite story. Fiction or nonfiction doesn't matter. At the heart of it is a point where the ultimate goal is realized or not realized. If it's not realized, it's something of a tragedy. If it is realized, it is a great victory. We don't have time to take this Bible and go from cover to cover here, obviously. It's a long story. And it's a story that includes much more than what's in the Bible. It's a story, the last chapter has not taken place yet, so we are in this story. We obviously don't have the time to look at human history and see what God is doing in the big picture. But I think if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we can get to the heart of it. And what I'd like to do over the next few moments is take you to the heart of the story that God is writing to look at what really matters in all of this. Take your favorite story. Where is that point? Where is that point of conquest or victory or defeat? I suppose to go back to A Christmas Carol, it's that place where Scrooge changes, right? Everything revolving around that story is just a matter of means and circumstances and results and events, but that's what's at the heart of it. I want to take you now to the heart of God's story. What is at the very heart of it all? In this passage, God tells us through the pen of the Apostle Paul that at the very heart of the human story, there is good news. Now before we look at that good news, I want you to consider what does it take to have good news? Is it an intriguing story? Or is it just a lame story that just lays out there as good news with no context? It's not at all. A good story where there's good news demands that there would be evil. Otherwise, there's no need for good news. But against the invasion of evil, there is at the very core of the real-life story God is writing good news. What is that good news? And I, I don't mind to tell you today, those of you particularly that visit with us, if you're not in habit of attending a church, you can attend many churches that have a lot of different definitions as to what the good news is. That good news tends to be twisted and turned into what we want to make it. But if you want to go to the author and find out what he says is the good news, I test this just as you need to test it. He tells us here, he goes on record as to what is at the heart of the story and what the good news really is. So we need to hear it. It's defined for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. I'd like you to note in that first phrase in 15.1, the phrase, the gospel. The gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel. We should not read that word. I need to understand, this text is originally written in the Greek language, a little different than English, and that word, to remind you, doesn't mean, I'm afraid you might have forgotten. 
but it means I have a solemn announcement to make, to bring to your attention, what is it? The gospel. That word gospel means good news or good announcement. At the heart of the story, in the midst of all the suffering and evil of God's story, there is an announcement that is good news. No real question of the meaning of the word, but there is, as I mentioned, a debate as to what is the content of that good news. What is that good news? The Corinthians understood this. So we are going to jump ahead so that we are sure that we understand what the gospel is, what the good news is. So many people who claim to be Christians redefine it in their own terms. People who are not Christians, who claim nothing to do with Christianity, don't have such good news. But let's look at it as the Bible lays it out. What exactly is the good news? Let's get it straight up. What's the gospel? We're going to jump down then to verse 3. For what I received to you, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. We'll pick up there in just a moment. We go to verse 3, and we look at the definition of the gospel, at what it is. The gospel, by definition, is the good news. But what is the good news? We find, first of all, its significance there in the first part of verse 3. I passed, on, I passed on to you that which is of first importance. That which is most significant, we're saying. That is the idea here of, of first importance. That which is most significant. Now I'd like you to notice what is most significant in this good news is something that is distinctly historical. The good news centers around historical facts. Let's look at the elements of those facts. We'll read it again. We see here that of most importance is the good news, verse 3, that, here's the content of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died. That's fact number one. Historical fact that comprises the gospel, Christ died just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps in April of 33 A.D., some would have a, a date a couple of years, three years earlier, but somewhere in that time, Jesus of Nazareth was executed on a Roman cross. He died. He died physically. He died historically. Now there are two qualifying phrases there that describe the significance of Christ's death. What do they say? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Here's the fact. Jesus died. It says that He died for our sins. What does that mean? For. We could translate the Greek word here, on behalf of. He died for us. He died in our behalf. Jesus' death had something to do with your moral failure. He died for our sins. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ became a curse for us. A curse in our stead. 1 Peter 2.24 says that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. Over and over the Bible declares that Jesus' death was not just a bad day in Jesus' life. Jesus' death was for our sins. He died in your place and he suffered the penalty of your sins. And that penalty was death. That's qualifying phrase number one. He died for our sins. 
in our stead, to bear the penalty of our sin. What's the second phrase? It says there, according to the gospel. Or according to the scriptures, rather. According to the scriptures, the second qualifying phrase. Some people want to convince us that Jesus' disciples invented the idea that Christ's death had anything to do with us. But Jesus died in strict conformity to the predictive writings of the Old Testament. We need to understand this as we think of the death of Christ. He did not simply die, and then people came up with ideas as to what that death meant. Jesus' death was in strict conformity to predictive prophecy. Hundreds of years of prophets writing and pointing to the death of Jesus Christ. The world was set for Jesus to come. It was set for Jesus to die. Writing 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah the prophet said in the 52nd and 53rd chapter, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He was oppressed and afflicted as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Prophecies about the coming Messiah. Prophecies that were in line with the genealogical record that pointed to the coming of Christ. And Jesus saw this. It was not just his disciples. He said in Luke 22 and verse 37, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, Jesus quoted the passage in Isaiah, the prophet who had lived 700 years before, and he said, I am that sacrificial lamb. I am the one that will be pierced. I am the one that will be lifted up on a stake. I am the one that will be buried with the rich, though I die with the wicked. He predicted all of this about himself as he saw himself in line with the prophetic writings of hundreds of years before him. We could go to Daniel chapter 9, which I believe very carefully pinpoints the day that Jesus Christ would come into Jerusalem and the time that Jesus knew he needed to die, the time of the sacrifice of the lambs at the Passover meal, which all pointed to his death. Jesus' death was not invented, the meaning of his death was not invented by his followers, it was according to the scriptures. It was laid out for hundreds of years preparing us for the coming of Messiah who would die as Jesus predicted through his life being lifted up, dying on a cross. Now no one today denies that Jesus died, obviously. It's been 2,000 years, he died. But it is important to know that he died in fulfillment of predictive prophecy. If Jesus died at exactly the time and in exactly the way that the Bible says, and as Jesus claimed, then the meaning of his death can be accepted. Now, we might think people that deny Christ could not care less about this whole thing. What does it matter to them? These disciples made up this idea that Jesus' death had something to do with us. It's just a story. But you know, a book was written recently they are still trying to explain away the death of Jesus Christ. And this is the reason. Now, this, uh, critical scholars are not going to tell you this. They're not going to tell you that the reason we want to deny how Jesus died and when Jesus died is because he died in strict conformity with Old Testament prophecy. They're not going to tell you that. 
They're just going to come up with an alternative means that sounds plausible. Here's the latest one, recently written, 451 pages by a uh, scholar who says that Jesus only appeared to die on the cross. That, you know, that as they gave him something to drink, there was a uh, poison in that that made him act like he was dead. They took him down off the cross. Some magician by the name of Simon Magnus came and gave him another potion that woke him up. Jesus woke up. He went on to marry Mary Magdalene. And then after they'd had enough, he divorced Mary Magdalene and he married Lydia, the seller of purple. He had three children and he died in Rome. This is the story that is being presented as to how Jesus died. Why does that scholar care about why Jesus died and how Jesus died and when Jesus died. It's not going to tell you, but the problem is that Jesus died exactly when the prophets said he would die, in exactly the way that they said that he would die. And so if all of that is true, then it appears to us that somebody else is writing the story. Not just the disciples of Jesus, but God himself who is laying out and preparing for us history to say that this is my son and this is who he will be and how he will die and when he will die. And so you will find with the critics, they don't want to say that Jesus died on the cross. They don't want to say that he was buried in a tomb and that he rose from the dead. They'll want to rewrite the facts because those facts point to the author of the story. But we find the early witness of Scripture that Jesus died according to the Scriptures. I need to hurry on and we'll go more quickly through these other elements. But you need to understand, here's the good news. Historically, Jesus died. Secondly, He was buried, verse 4. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was buried. Burial, burial is proof of His death. Now, again, here the critics come in and they try to find out a way to explain away the burial of Jesus Christ. He was buried not in a tomb. He was buried, here's the common line, in a shallow grave and dogs dug him up and ate him during the night. Why did they care? They care because, again, all of this is according to the Scriptures. Isaiah 53 predicted that he would be buried with the rich even though he died a hideous death with the wicked. He was raised, third element, raised from the dead, verse 4. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That ultimate conquest of death has been won by Christ. Death is the greatest of all of our enemies, the most unconquerable of evils. But Jesus Christ defeated death by rising from the grave. In the Greek text, there's a sudden change of tense here. He was raised, we don't have this tense in English, but it says to us that He exists now in resurrected form. He goes on in resurrection. Psalm 16 prophesied hundreds of years before that the Messianic King would not see corruption, and He did not. In stark contrast to Greek philosophy, which taught that the physical body was a tomb for the divine soul, and we needed to leave out of the body to get away from the physical body, the Bible knows nothing of this idea that the, that the body is evil. In fact, there is good news. Good news that our physical makeup will be, can be, resurrected. And Jesus won this victory by defeating death. 
The Bible teaches it is his conquest of death that confirms that what he did on the cross was accepted by God. And secondly, it is the basis of hope for our own resurrection. The elements. He died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. If burial is the proof that he died, what is the proof that he rose from the dead? Does the Bible record just say Jesus rose from the dead and, wow, that was a great idea, late-breaking thought here. Nobody's ever seen him. Nobody's ever witnessed this resurrection, but we'd like to tell you that he rose from the dead physically. Not at all the case. Notice how carefully the gospel is defended here in this passage that Christ's resurrection was witnessed. Not the event, but the results. That, his resu- that in his resurrected form he was seen. Notice it there in verse 4. He was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul mentions here five of ten recorded appearances of the resurrected Christ. And you'll see in the gray uh, areas here are the ones that he refers to here. There are ten historical records or or, uh, references to the uh, appearances of the resurrected Christ. In verse 6 of our text here, he appears to the 500 in Galilee, far to the north of Jerusalem. And you notice here that these 500 people, what do we have here in this room now? Not nearly that many. You multiply this over, maybe let's just guess and say we've got 100 or 125 here. Multiply that over to 500 people who saw him all at the same time. Now, if that's a trick, if you're going to get together and come up with this idea, that's going to be pretty hard to maintain over the years. But what does the text here say? Many of them are still alive among us. 25 years later, The majority, we would assume here, we don't know exactly how many died, but 25 years later, 500 people, many of these people were still there to confirm that Jesus had, in fact, appeared to all of them at the same time. Not to all of them individually, not to them as they were shaving at the mirror in the morning. He appeared to them all at once. He appeared to individuals, he appeared to groups. A big group, different smaller groups. This is very important to the gospel that it is confirmed, that there are witnesses. He appeared to James, his half-brother, in verse 7. Now this is interesting because James did not believe in Christ. His own brother did not believe that he was the Son of God. But after his death, Jesus appeared to his half-brother James, the son of Mary and Joseph. He appeared to James, and James came to believe. He appeared to the apostles, all the apostles, probably verse 7, referring to his ascension from the Mount of Olives. And verse 8, that's kind of a strange verse, isn't it? Last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Jesus Christ, in resurrected form, appeared to the apostle Paul at a time other than he appeared to the others. That is, at a time after his ascension into heaven. So there's a kind of a strange place that Paul assumes here. But the point of all of this this is that they saw him in physical form, in a resurrected body, they saw him. Now let's summarize this real quickly for just a moment. What is the gospel? What is the good news? It is an historical event. It is the historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth died and rose from the dead. 
The good news is this fallen world is not the final victory. The final victory has been won by Christ over death. He died and he rose again. The death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the heart of the gospel. Now hear me carefully here. How do you define the good news? How do you define the gospel as it pertains to your own salvation? I say be careful here because we live in a, in a culture where there's a lot of Christian influence. In many Christian churches and many Christian people, I would venture to say that probably the majority who would claim to be Christians define the good news as being able to live a good life and get to heaven. They define the good news as being a pretty good person or of making a commitment to Christ or to follow the Spirit of Jesus. Now you've seen the heart of the message. You've looked inside the covers and got to the point of it right here. Is that what the good news is? Is that the gospel? We'd be pretty good people. We try our best. We can go to heaven. That is not the gospel at all. The gospel is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a historical event. But it doesn't stop there. What we have straight, if you follow me to this point, what we have straight on the basis and the authority of Scripture, what we have straight is what it is, what the definition is of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ, but it doesn't end there. The good news part of it, at this point, all, all that is is just facts. But now we go up to the beginning of the passage. We're kind of reading it backwards here because the Corinthians understood all of this. But let's go backwards now and look at verse 1. First of all, we must understand what the good news is. Secondly, we must embrace the good news personally. So these are historical facts that we must embrace, we must receive, we must believe, we must trust. You notice that there in verse 1 that there is a personal reception involved. Now, brothers, I want you to rem remind you, when he says brothers, by the way, he's just talking about the brotherhood, the family of God, the church at Corinth. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. You've received it. So yes, there's these historical facts. You've got to know what those facts are, but they had received these facts. These facts are not intended to merely interest or to entertain us. Neither is the gospel something that we discover for ourselves or invent. The gospel is an authoritative historical message which demands a response from you and from me. It's a message that we have got to humbly receive by faith and accept that Jesus died, but that he died for my sins. And we must then stand on it. It's personally received. And what is the result when we receive this message by faith? Verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. Let me stop there just for a moment. By this gospel you are saved. By this good news, the facts, which you have received, you are saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty of sin, which is death. The Bible teaches us 
that we are not good people. This is, to me, this has got to be the most discouraging thing for a Christian to go to a church and hear. Sitting there knowing in the depths of our soul that we are sinful people. Knowing in the depths of our heart that we cannot stand before a holy God and say, I was a pretty good person. I might add up to the guy next door, but how do I add up to God who is holy and pure and sinless? And I come to church with that knowledge that I am a sinner and the speaker says, be a good person and you go to heaven. Do good things and you'll make it. How discouraging. That's not good news. That's anxiety as far as I'm concerned. How can I ever know I'm good enough? And I keep hearing these stories about people that are better than I am. How can, is that good news to say be a good person and you'll go to heaven? It's not good news and you won't find one line of it in the Bible. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It's a gospel that people have invented because it makes them feel better at the outset. What we're saved from is our sin. And what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there is no one who seeks God. No one who does good. Sin, our sin, demands a punishment. Here's the good news. Not that you're a good person. Not that you're not sinful. You are. You know it. I know it about myself. Here's the good news, that all of your sin was put on Jesus Christ. That He, as God in flesh, came to this earth to die on a cross in your place and took all of your sin and He paid the price for you. That's the good news. And if you receive that in faith, the result is salvation from the penalty that you deserve for your sin. It is not a message of everybody's good, everything's okay, everything's going to turn out well at the end. This is a violent, wicked, fallen world. You know it. And in the midst of this fallenness, in the midst of this sin, the good news that comes out is that Jesus Christ can rescue you from it all. He can rescue you from your sin. What do you need to do? As verse 1 says very clearly, this is the message that you received. It's not enough to simply know about it. It's a message that you must embrace with all of your heart. You need to turn from your sin and turn from the foolishness that says, I can take care of heaven on my own. I'll be a good enough person and I'll compare myself with others and I'll get there on my own. Forget about that foolishness and embrace the saving message of Christ, that He bore your sins to take them away. He died on the cross to pay their penalty if you receive them. Now there's a strange phrase that concludes verse 2. And I want to look at that as we close here. It says, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. If you hold firmly the... Um, some translations have something like, if you keep it in memory. That's not a, really a very good translation of the Greek text, but it's, if you hang on to it. Now, is that saying that once we receive the message of salvation, if we ever let go of it for one moment, if we fall into sin that's a hideous form, that it's all gone and we've lost our salvation? That's not what this is saying at all. 
What, look very carefully at it. If you do not hold firmly to this message, what happens? If you do not hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. If you do not hold firmly to this message, the text does not say that you lose your salvation. If you do not hold firmly to this message, the text says that it is proof that you never believed. That you never came to a place where you really accepted and received the message. And maybe you've heard the gospel before. Maybe you've heard of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't hold to it firmly. As a matter of fact, it really doesn't make a lick of difference to you in your life when it really comes down to it. If that's you, maybe you prayed a prayer. Maybe you walked an aisle. Maybe you did something. Maybe some kind of really mystical experience took place, something that you can't ever forget. If you're not holding firmly to it, you never really believed it. Because once you come to believe that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of your sins and that he rose from the dead, it saves you. It saves you from hell to come, but it also, in a progressive sense, is saving you from the sin in your life. There's a transformation that takes place so that Paul can say, if you hold firmly to the word, otherwise you believed in vain. That means your faith was empty. It was meaningless. It was worthless. This message of salvation in Christ transforms people. It changes them. Now, it's going to change you overnight, necessarily. Some people it does. Some people it doesn't. But there's going to be change. We must believe the facts of Christ's death and embrace them for ourselves. How can we trust this message? Verse 3 says it, For I have received... What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul received it, and what he means here is by means of divine revelation. God made clear to him the truth, as has been made clear by Jesus who was on earth, and has, as has been made clear by prophets throughout history whose predictions have proven flawless. We've received this message. In other words, here's the good news as well. The author of the story speaks. He teaches. He speaks to us in his word. And it has been revealed. So what is the gospel? Do you understand what it really is? The good news. Gospel means good news. And the good news is that your sins can be forgiven. Not by going to church. Not by living a life better than your neighbors and relatives not by praying and reading the Bible, not by following some prescribed list of religious rituals, and certainly not by ignoring God. But the good news is based on the historical event that Jesus died, He was buried, He rose again, and He was seen by witnesses in His resurrected form. And that good news becomes good news to you when you receive it with all of your heart turning from your sin, your selfishness, and your way of paying for your own sin, just simply receiving in faith that message. Do you trust the work that Christ has done in your behalf? This is the best news in all the world. It's better than a Viking's win or a Packers win, if you're minded by that, that way, or some other win. It's greater than hitting it rich. It's greater 
than anything else that you can understand or know. This is the good news. But let me tell you, this good news emerges out of tragedy. There is tragedy when this news is rejected. And if God's word proclaims the good news of Christ crucified, it also proclaims the tragedy of turning from this truth and not receiving it. You must receive it in faith. Each one of us who sits here has to receive this truth. We must embrace it personally before it will have any life-changing event. Otherwise, we will have heard the truth in vain. We may have even believed the truth in vain. Know what the gospel is. Understand it. Secondly, embrace it by faith that Jesus did die and that his death was for you. It was for you to take away sins. It was for you to secure a place in heaven. Have you embraced it? Let's bow for a word of prayer as we close.